Well, this morning is about worship. And uh, in a few moments, we will worship together. And as a part of worship, we will bring forward an offering. And you'll see these baskets go by. And um, if you're a guest or, uh, or if the money thing in church kind of wigs you out, then let it go by. Don't make that uh, be some act of hypocrisy for you. But for the rest of us who are stewards of what God's doing around here at Lakeland, it's our act of worship. It's no different than singing or giving a child a cup of cold water. So um, may you be blessed when you give to God, and God, may you be honored by what we do. Um, This chart here that I just put up on this easel has been rolling around inside my head in various shapes and forms. Um, for the last few weeks, and I've been trying to describe graphically, I'm kind of a visual learner, maybe if you are, then today's your day, if not, sorry, but I've been trying to describe graphically how does change happen? Where does change happen? What, what is, how do we affect change? And uh, for those on the podcast, it's a circle, five circles, and there's a big one with change on it, and then we have around it four smaller circles with the words God, others, uh, world, and self. And the idea is that change, we would like to change these various areas and components of our life, and maybe that sort of sums up your whole life right there. I guess it kind of does for me. And um, the idea is that we want things to change, and so we would say, all right, well, let's change the world. Let's change the world. That sounds like a great idea. I mean, after all, political parties and everybody else and ideologues all want to change this sort of deal. And then we click on the news and we see that there's senseless killings and celebrities still have problems and there are uprisings and and we're like, oy vey, you know, is the world ever going to change? You know, and and we get frustrated and then we think, okay, well, maybe the world will never change. What about others? What about others? Can we expect to change others? I mean, what about change your spouse or your family or your whole family dynamic? And then we realize, golly, the counselor told me that this is really, really hard to change. I'm going to have to really, really want to change. You know, and then the counselor also said, you can't change your spouse. You can only change you. Like, oh, okay, well, I'll change me, myself. That's what I'm going to work on. I'm going to change myself. And then you're like, oh, man, you mean like i got to stop eating this way? And then there's the smoking and the drinking and the exercise stuff. And then you're like, oh, this is so much work. You know what the worst part is about trying to change yourself? Is you already know what you're dealing with. You know everything about you. That's why it's so hard. And we're not even talking about the really hardcore stuff like depression and low self-esteem and loneliness and fear. (laughs) Ugh. Well then what about God? Can we change God? So we end up praying. Oh, God, you know, heal me or heal this person or God, bring world peace or God, you know, if you're really on the job, why wouldn't you make a change and cause all these small children who don't have shoes to have shoes? And then your Calvinist side kicks in and says, you can't really actually change God. God is immutable. Some other omni-word. What are we left to change? This is kind of what hit me. 
We. There's another circle with the word we on it. <clears throat> we tend to be able to change things. <laughs> we seem to be the arena where change happens. We seem to bring hope of real change to ourselves, to our world, to others. God, at least as far as from our side of things, perceived that way. Together, around here at Lakeland, we have Mercy Street. It's a 12-step base type program, and it makes tremendous progress in people's hang-ups and hurts and addictions and this sort of thing because the we thing kicked in. And you just heard about the redemptive community for ANAPRA, the rice and beans program from Katie. That's another we thing. People gather together. They wouldn't do it on their own for some reason, but when we get together, we tend to affect change in other people's lives, in ourselves, and in the world, in our attitude towards God. Together, we fund dozens of training centers for young emerging Christians in the People's Republic of China. Together, Lakeland provides surgeries for ulcerated women in Liberia, Africa. T together, we feed and clothe orphans in, in Haiti. The we-ness, <laughs> the us-ness of it is powerful. The we seems to affect the best change. And what I find most intriguing is that most of the change we can affect involves generous gifts of money and then talents and time. But it's our treasures that seem to be the most powerful change agent when we gather together. I've been talking about generosity and giving and money the last couple of weeks. And so here we get around to the change that it will do. And also, here we are the last Sunday before Lent begins, as Kristen told us. It's the last Sunday before Lent begins here on Ash Wednesday, where we celebrate the, the, and live out the 40 days of Jesus' temptation in the desert. It's a time of self-examination and uh, change, of course. Lent's a season of reflection and hope. If we do Lent together, it may change all of these areas in our lives if we do it with the we, if we get that done. So I want to address then this morning one particular we thing that we can change, and I would like for you to mull it over. There's not a lot of, uh, you know, traction on where this is going to go, except for Lent, but I'm beginning to plant the seeds about one particular area of change at Lakeland Community Church, and that area is worship, and worship space, and sacred space, and divine space, and an environment of worship. And you'll hopefully see what I'm talking about here for the next few minutes. To do so, to set the stage, we begin with a rather obscure uh, Bible story out of the Old Testament. It's during the reign of King David. So this is in the uh, 9th century um, B.C. And um, it is the story of the Ark of the Covenant coming into Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant, that chest or whatever it was that was very ornate. Inside were supposedly the Ten Commandments and some other things like that. And it was the, the, the place where God would sort of hover over it for the Hebrews. 
It had been lost, you know. The Philistines, the enemies of the Hebrews, had stolen it. It didn't go well for about the seven months that the Philistines stole it because everywhere they got near it, people started dying. They, they put it in their um, temple of their, their false god, Dagon, and the Dagon statue just fell over and crumbled all to pieces. And so the Philistines had enough of this Ark of the Covenant being in their presence. It's not a good idea to steal the god, you know, tabernacle of your enemy. So they just put it on a cart with a couple of oxen and just said, Go! And the thing wandered off out into the wilderness, kind of towards Jerusalem, actually. And during harvest time, <clears throat> some Jewish people found it, and the Hebrews found it, and they said, they were all rejoicing. They are like, the Ark of the Covenant just showed up, right? Philistines said, good riddance. So King David takes the Ark of the Covenant, and they're going to bring it in Jerusalem, and they're going to set up this tent tabernacle thing right there in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, by the way, is a very strategic capital for King David. The northern and southern kingdoms all come together right there. Keeps everybody happy. This is even better. They got the Ark of the Covenant there. So there's your political commentary. So here's what happens, okay? Everybody's excited. There's a huge parade, a massive procession. The whole city's out. People have come from miles around. There are singers and dancers and musicians. Here's the Ark of the Covenant on this cart. And King David is out in front dancing and singing. He's a musician as well. I don't even know if he's playing a musical instrument or whatever. But he's out there leading the people in and leading this Ark of the Covenant in. <clears throat> okay? And this is what it says. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 16. As the Ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Well, there's one person who wasn't too happy about this whole thing. Michal. Saul's daughter, who was one of David's wives, and a very important, you know, how these king's people have to <clears throat> marry the right people. So the ark arrives in the city. <clears throat> everybody goes home with gifts from King David. He gave everybody gifts, which is really cool. He goes home to rest, let down at the palace, and guess who meets him at the door? Michal his wife. And she says, how the king of Israel honored himself today and covered himself today before the eyes of the servants' maids as any vulgar fellow might shamelessly uncover himself. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me in place of your father, Saul, and all his household to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, that I have danced before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in my own eyes. But by the maids of whom you've spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Okay, then. <laughs> David says, you want to see embarrassment? I'll do even more than this. It's before God that I danced and sang. And I don't have any problem with it. It seems, though, what Michal's real problem was is that David was wearing a linen ephod. Linen ephod. It's a very fine uh, piece of material. It's close, tight-fitting. It's kind of more like underwear. And I think she was really embarrassed for her husband and him being the king because the king was supposed to be wearing big, heavy, cool king robes. And here he is out dancing in the street in front of all the slave people in his underwear. Really nice underwear, but it was in his underwear. If you want to track with this, then just imagine 
<clears throat> the President of the United States in a white leotard going down, you know, Pennsylvania or something like that. Sorry about that, President. Just an illustration. But David let her know, I will worship God at any price, any place, even to my own shame. If we hope to change towards God, <clears throat> our devotion towards God has to take on a generosity of worship. It has to take on an exuberance, a passion, and a zeal that matches what God is worth. It must take on a seemingly ridiculous extravagance. In our lifetime, probably every church out there thinks they kind of got the worship thing right. You know what I mean? I mean, churches tend to think they got the worship thing right. Uh, <clears throat> the apostolic holiness folk, they worship with abandon. I mean, nobody can match the shaking and the dancing of the apostolic holiness folk they dance, they shout, they speak in tongues, they sweat and sway and slay in the spirit and all of that sort of thing. Personally, it's not my style. I've been there, I've done that, and maybe I'm all Mikhail, but it's just embarrassing for me. I just don't have it in me. I'm sorry. It's just never really quite been my shtick, okay? Perhaps I'm just too much like Mikhail, but... Personally, I have my own way of thinking about extravagance in worship, and it tends to involve, then, extravagant worship spaces. I love uh, art. I love environment. I, I'm, I'm a smells and bells person when it comes to worship. I love incense. I love candles. I love stained glass. Uh, you give me a stained glass window of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and I am crushed with the sunlight streaming through it. And stone silence. And just me in that sanctuary. I am deeply moved by large cathedrals. Whether it be Catholic, Anglican, Lutheran, Orthodox of all those different kinds. I see pictures of them. I secretly have a dream of wanting to take a vacation of Europe and just do one of those. You ever hear about these vacations where you can just tour cathedrals? I hear that after about three of them it's kind of like been there, done that. Which may be true. I think I would actually love all of them. I, I like uh, the 20th century spiritual writer Thomas Merton because he came to Jesus sitting in a ruin in France of a cathedral. And he said there must be a God because he's a total atheist. I thought, I think I might do that too. I like St. Francis of Assisi because he went out and with a group of lepers began to rebuild a cathedral out in the middle of nowhere that had fallen into ruin. And they became the Franciscans, helping the poor, rebuilding the cathedral. I'm attracted by these spaces, by how much effort goes into the layout and into the symbols. I love the thoughtful attention to detail and the craftsmanship and the art that's involved. It might not be your deal, but that's how I would worship in extravagance. That's how I would do it. I remember the very first time I encountered this. I grew up Baptist, and our little church was a humble little building, not much to it. And then I went, with, at 16 years old, I went with my best friend. 
um, we'd both really become Christians about that time, and I went to his Episcopal church. He grew up Episcopalian, you know. It's funny because he didn't know anything about the Bible. I could quote the Bible all day long growing up Baptist. We'd both fallen into, let's just say, sowing our wild oats. But nonetheless, we were back to Jesus. And I went to his Christmas Eve service at 11.15 at night. And I was blown away. I walked in. The room had richly carved wood all over the places, all over the place. There was a large marble basin that was ornately carved that I later found out was a baptismal fount. The, the whole room was dimly lit except for candles, dressed out with greenery for Christmas. We sang songs I'd hardly ever heard before, like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We knelt right there and confessed our sins. Like, I'd never done that in my whole life. Gone to church my whole life, never done that. Then we all got up and we had to go down front. I'd never done that for this thing called the Eucharist, which I found out means good gift. And they called it a feast. I'd always just done this memorial for a dead guy named Jesus. But for them, it was all a celebration. It was so cool. Just blew me away. On the table up there were silver platters and goblets and all this sort of thing. Stained glass right behind the table and all of that. Everything was special. You know, for centuries, for centuries, Christians have spent vast fortunes on cathedrals and chapels and sanctuaries. There was a time in my life when I thought that was a complete waste of money. It could have been spent on preaching the gospel. It could have been spent on the poor. It could have been spent on something important. And I sound like Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus, you know, when they're at the Last Supper and the, or at the meal at Martha and Mary's house, and Mary's anointing Jesus' feet with the perfume. And Judas Iscariot says, what is she doing? He's pouring out that year's worth expensive ointment on Jesus' feet. Don't you know, Master, that that could have been sold and the money given to the poor? Gospel John says that actually Judas Iscariot was a thief, and that's why he actually wanted to see the money exchanged. I hate to think of myself like that. Around Lakeland Community Church, we take a very practical approach to everything. We are one of those practical churches from this generation. We think in, in does do the seats work for everyone? Is the sound good or the lights good? Does everything work? It's all pragmatism. Because when Lakeland first started, we were a church built for people, maybe like some of you here today, that were far away from God. You believed in God. You just didn't quite know a church that would actually, you know, be honest and sincere enough where you could actually buy into the thing. And so we tried to make church accessible to everyone. We didn't want anything to get in the way. And so we, in a sense, sort of deconstructed church so we could rebuild it into a very simple format, which is what you're experiencing right now. I, I hope. <laughs> Lakeland's always been pragmatic. What we always thought about when it came to change was the world and other people. That was the two areas. And every now and then we'd venture into some sort of therapeutic type idea about the self. But mostly it was always about somebody else. The whole church was designed about that. 
And the facility and the buildings and everything was designed around reaching out to other people. Nothing like that. Uh, nothing like stained glass or anything ever entered into our mind. You know, when we had the prints for this room that you're sitting in right now, on the blueprints it said auditorium. Somewhere along in the construction process, I, I wanted to change it to say sanctuary. I don't know what the conviction was. I thought it shouldn't be an auditorium. Auditorium's like where you go to see a movie or hear a speaker or something like that. It, it should be a, a soul sanctuary. And so I got on the architect and said, hey, can you change that on there? And he, after about three, four times, he started kind of rolling his eyes, kind of like, big deal. I mean, the city guides, they don't care whether it says auditorium or sanctuary. What's a big deal to you? And he finally changed it. It meant something to me because I wanted a place where people come in that are tired and weary and need a touch from God, a sanctuary for the soul. And that's why I had it changed. Even back then, in 2005, we were beginning to make a slight shift, a change around here at Lakeland Community Church that began to say, perhaps, perhaps worship is worth it. Perhaps it's something that we ought to think about. In those days, everything was about reaching out to seeking friends. But on this long, deep spiritual journey that I've been on and several other people have been on around here, and maybe it's you, we've come to realize that Jesus is much more than just simply an atoning sacrifice for a man, uh, of a man who died in our place on a cross and rose to guarantee eternal life. We begin to realize that salvation is not just a narrow thing about atonement, but it's a broader salvation. Salvation is too narrowly defined to just say it's about getting, you know, the get out of jail, the get out of hell free card. It is not just about saving disembodied souls to an eternal bliss. It isn't about an entire life lived now that is consuming. Jesus said, he said, I am like the trunk. I am like the lifeblood of a, of a vine. And you are its extended branches where the fruit comes out. If you are cut off, you can do nothing. You're only suited for being gathered together and burned as kindling. You will produce no fruit if you are cut off from me. He's saying it is about a life. A life that is drawing out of the deep roots of Jesus Christ. It is not just simply about getting scanned like some barcode thing so you can go to heaven and stay out of hell. It is a bigger deal. And that's been a great lesson for us. Uh, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, I was sitting in China, in the People's Republic of China, and I went to an English corner, as they call it, and it was out on a university campus and in a little coffee shop, which coffee is still, at least out where we were, a, a great novelty uh, for the Chinese people. Uh, and so we went there to drink coffee. And I sat down at a table, the only seat that was available, and students had come to learn English, and that was really fun. And I sat down across from an older man, and me being an old guy, I guess they stuck me with the old guy. And uh, he was very dignified, and he kind of closed his eyes a lot like this and put his fingers like this. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a very interesting conversation. And he pulled out a Bible and set it between us on the table. And he told me he was a part of the Communist Party and that he taught English at the university. Okay. And he said, now, I have a question for you. He said, I understand the point of Christianity is to not to go to the hell, but to go to the heaven. And I said, no. 
The point of Christianity is to be in Christ. And he said, ah, and he wrote that down. Everything inside of me wanted to give the simple answer that would allow me to say I converted this guy by saying I told this guy how to get to heaven through Jesus Christ and it was going to be a check mark that I could just check off and it'd all be easy and he'd be scanned and get his get out of hell free card and we'd all be good. But I knew it would be a dishonest answer because the honest answer is that it means conversion means your entire life now and into eternity. It is all of you. That is conversion. That's why it's called conversion, not checkmark. He would have just had his barcode scanned, and he would have been saved, and it all would have been nice and tidy, and we all could have gone home and felt good about ourselves, and there would have been nothing that would have said to him, go out and live a different life. But if I told him, your job is to be in Christ, now he has an entirely different mandate about what it looks like including, of course, the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ. For Lakeland, the past decade has been this long, slow shift towards a fuller expression of the gospel. We have come to critique ourselves and to understand the words of the famous Christian author of the last 20 years who said, we have to be careful that we aren't vampire Christians, that we just want Jesus for his blood. We have to be careful that we don't turn the gospel into just fire insurance. We have to be careful that salvation is not cut off from the rest of life. That it is really a life of worship. A life of being connected to Jesus, the vine. Anything else is not the full gospel. And this has been a great change for us around here at Lakeland over the last decade. Can Lakeland then move past just thinking pragmatically when we get around to thinking about God? Can we move towards a greater worship? We have excellent talent around here, don't get me wrong. And beautiful space, don't get me wrong. But can Lakeland continue the change and begin to push the edge of the envelope even wider and open? We have come so far. We have this broader understanding of the Christian life and of the church. Back in 2006, this really began to change because several of us uh, on session, the elders, went to Vancouver to speak with a prominent Christian pastor who was working inside the uh, he's Chinese, working inside the uh, persecuted house church in China. And we said, we are interested in getting involved with this sort of thing. What will we do? It was actually a rather clandestine little trip because this was far off track than what Lakeland was usually doing around here. But we were interested in seeing what was going on in China. And so we went, and he said, well, here's one of the most powerful things you could do. You can actually build a school for very poor people out in the country in China, and it will ingratiate, and have it come from the Christians, and it will ingratiate the Christians to the hostile communist leaders of that local county or village. They'll think the Christians are awesome because they're actually loving the poor. Like, what a novel idea. Never heard of that. It didn't really sound like preaching the gospel, but okay. I said, well, pastor, and we left. I said, as we left, I said, if you hear about one of these opportunities, let us know and we'll consider it. He called a few weeks later and said, I got a, a, a poorest place on the earth in Asia, Nayang County in China. And these poor people want a school and that they could also use as a church uh, out in the middle of nowhere. And he said, it costs $10,000, and if you don't do it, I will, which is always a little bit of a throwdown to me. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll check it out. 
We went there. We saw it. Sure enough, it is the poorest place on the earth. I got online and looked, and Nyung County is one of the poorest, statistically, one of the poorest places on the planet. Actually, it was. I just hard, have a hard time saying that. It's the poorest place on the planet. The children had sores all over them. Their bellies were sticking out and swollen. Everyone lived in dirt and filth and the uh, stuff you don't want to hear about. And they were so excited that we came. And so we came back to Lakeland and said, hey, do you want to give $10,000? Should we raise $10,000 to build a school for these poor people? And some of them are believers, and it will really help the gospel and all of that. And that was Christmas of 2006, and we didn't raise $10,000. We raised $30,000. And that's even more phenomenal because we were in $2.4 million campaign at that time to buy this place. Lakeland had shifted to becoming a church of compassion. The gospel began to broaden out, and it began to say, When did you see me hungry and feed me? When did you see me thirsty and give me drink? When did you see me sick and and come and visit me or in prison and visit me? The words of Jesus began to make clear. And the words of the Old Testament prophets saying, You have abandoned the poor. You have done nothing. You, you, You can't wait to get back to buying and selling and oppressing people. You sell a slave girl for a pair of shoes. And God, so angry at the injustice. And these days, Lakeland might be called sort of one of these uh, biblical justice churches, you know, and for those who only have two words that define the world, liberal and conservative, I guess that makes us liberal, which is really weird since we totally believe in the Bible and you know, the virgin conception and the resurrection and the authority of Scripture. And, like, you need some more labels out there if you think we're just liberal. Like, get another one. How about biblical? There's one. I mean, the whole Bible. Not just John 3.16, for those of you who are in on that sort of thing. Our new identity looked like helping others in the name of Jesus. They looked like helping others in the name of Jesus. But here we are, moving along on our journey, and we come yet to another turn in our journey as a church. In addition to making church accessible to those who are far away from God, in addition to helping the least of us, We may find ourselves someday soon wanting to create beautiful worship spaces, not only for ourselves, but for others. What if a part of this library, and I'm going to get in trouble for this from Katie, I'm sure. What if a part of this library down in Annapolis, we just actually just put in some sort of a nicho, you know what I mean? Uh, A a sacred space, like with a stained glass in it or something like that. And they'd be like, why would you put that in the library for? Like, what what if God just showed up there? What if there's some small child down in Annapolis who says, I've never seen a stained glass window or leaded glass or a picture of anything holy. I don't know. I'm just making this stuff up, trying to get in trouble. Hmm. What if someday the People's Republic of China relents and they actually allow Christians to gather together, like by the hundreds, by the thousands, 1.3 billion people. They're going to have some big churches going on over there if they never let them you know, have the freedom that we have right now that we all take for granted out of the First Amendment that says you have the right to assembly, okay? It will come someday soon, everyone says. Perhaps we will be the ones to help them create beautiful worship spaces. What if in Haiti we funded the idea of providing a church for people, earthquake, 
The whole place is a pit. The churches I've been to in Haiti, it was nothing but dirt floor and a roof over their head, and they were happy, and they sang with abandonment. What if we could help them have a proper worship space? What if the Hope Center, just 25 minutes away from here, what if the Hope Center down at Linwood and Benton Boulevard, what if down there we could recommission the Catholic Church with its hardwood floors and its beautiful marble, white marble. Have you ever been down there? I think some of you were down there for us when we went to church down there. It was 25 degrees and there was no heat. You remember that? What if that place, they got a core group of people going on down there, and we could come alongside and say, we will help you turn this place back into a, a viable church environment. It's already set up to win. Will we answer that call? Will we offer that gift to the people of God and to God himself? And what if Lakeland just decided to create a, a, a chapel around here or a more beautiful worship space somewhere? What if our children who are in sacred space right now, what if we help them out rather than uh, just getting everybody's cast-off stuff? We came alongside the people who are trying to make a beautiful environment for those kids, our own kids, and they too could be caught up in an environment of worship. Would we allow ourselves to spend money on that sort of thing? This is a real shift for Lakeland. This is a change. And it strikes at our pragmatism. And it looks like it's a waste of money. And it would be a change for us to get around to thinking that worship environment is important. Can we make that change? You know, um, not long after this encounter with King David and his wife, Michal, he said this. One day, David's sitting around, and he says this. He says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says, I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. I am sitting in luxury while the ark of God is sitting in a tent. Now, I don't know what it's like to live in a house of cedar. It smells a lot like a gerbil cage to me without the other parts. But nonetheless, cedar must have been a very beautiful thing, as it is, as we all know, if you have a cedar closet or something like that. David says, I want to build God a temple that is so beautiful. And David said, you're not the man. Your son, when he becomes king, King Solomon, he's going to build my temple. David said, all right then. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Since I can't build a temple, I'm going to stockpile everything that he's going to need to build the temple. You know what he did? I find this hard to believe. He didn't collect just a little gold or a little silver. He collected 3,750, not ounces, not pounds, tons of gold. 3,750 tons of gold. Where is it buried, folks? Like that is a treasure. Incredible. It is said that Solomon's temple could be seen for 25 miles away. The dome on it on top of the Temple Mount was gold, real gold. And it shone like a light. And when you read the Psalms or other places in Scripture and it says a, a, a city sit on a hill is like a light, or even when Jesus says you don't put a light under a basket and these sort of metaphors, he's talking about the temple of God for the Hebrew people sitting in Jerusalem, shining its light to all nations. What will Lakeland shine its light towards? Yes, 
we will continue to be a place where on Sunday mornings we are accessible to people who are far away from God or struggling on their spiritual journey. Yes, we will continue to partner with the poor and other ministries that preach the gospel and serve people. The question is, is will we move to a place of change where we can understand what it means to worship God and quoting Calvin and his confession in saying, the chief end of humanity is to glorify and enjoy God forever. That is it. And when we bring people into conversion, we convert their entire life so that they become an incense to God, an oblation to God, that they go up like a, a, a smoke offering, like a holocaust, that they are a poor drink, that their life is worship. That is what we are after. That is what we are after. Will we make this sort of change? Here's my proposition to you for Lent, and it's an easy one. In your house, might I suggest that you create a small space, a worship space, and try this sort of smells and bells and stained glass thing out for yourself. It may not be your dealio, but that's okay. Don't do it then. But for some of us, perhaps you ought to stretch your, your worship and your season of Lent for seven weeks, set up somewhere on a dining room table or someplace where you won't have to move it all the time, a cross. You can get your Bible out. You can put a verse there that you want to memorize. By the way, if you want an easy one, just do the one that Christians have been doing since the first hundred years of the church. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's the publican's prayer. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Put that on there. Light a candle for every person in the house or for those special concerns that are going on. If someone is sick or ill or someone's getting married or something like that or had a baby. Create some sort of sacred space and then 20 minutes or 30 minutes a day or whatever. Maybe there's a book there that you're reading. You would go there and you would spend your time reading the Psalms or reading Scripture. And then maybe during that time you go for a walk and you say that prayer. Lord have mercy on me a sinner. And as you walk, your rhythm of your walking is the breathing of that prayer. Do something special during Lent. They don't always have to be a fast, and Garrett will say more about this next Sunday and so forth, <clears throat> about not just always just giving up something that's about giving up chocolate or something like that, which is, has very little to do with Lent. Instead, perhaps you would do something of engagement instead of abstinence and begin to feed your soul and draw close to God. This would be especially true for people who are just beginning their spiritual journey. Do this sort of thing. It's just an idea, and see what you want to do. Now, we are going to continue our spiritual journey together, and you can mull over what I've said, and you can do so uh, in worship, because we are going to worship, and the band is going to lead us, and this is how we're going to end this morning, with a benediction at the end, with a scripture that we say together. But we are going to come together now and we're going to offer up to God our voices. I'm not so much sure about the linen ephod and the dancing thing, but nonetheless, you know, we are going to sing with whatever we got. Stand up, please, and we will worship our Lord. Father, we come before you. Our hearts are open. We are not quite sure how to worship you. We are just mere creatures. We are no different. We are no different than the animals, Lord. We will go back to the dust someday, as your scripture says. But God, in this moment, May we be an offering up to you. May we give to you, not take, but give. 
in the name of Jesus, the one who gave us everything through his cross and his blood and his resurrection in his name. And we all said, I got one verse here for you from the end of chapter 2 from Paul in uh, the letter to the church in Ephesus. And it sums up this idea that we were all foreigners and now we have come together into this beautiful thing called the church. And we are the temple of God. Listen to this. It says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. Would you say this with me? Just make it a declaration. If you don't believe it, then don't say it. But for those of us who do, let's just say this together, all right? With me? So, then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. You are the dwelling place of God, so wash out there into the world and let it be known. Amen? Amen. Go in peace.